uh, before I start with the introduction, okay? Okay, so we are live. Welcome to my digital talk. Today I have two guests, Albert Markle and Nicholas Glinsman. Both are geopolitical and geoeconomic experts. Uh, Nicholas is also macro specialist. And our topic today is uh, global macro outlook. It's uh, quite of a broad topic. That's why I would like to immediately start with a direct question to both of you, which is what is your assessment and anticipation about the global macro outlook following the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, what are your main expectations now for the second half of the year? I think we start first with uh, Albert, and then we move to Nick and we will rotate uh, our guests uh, uh, following the questions. Well, thank you, Valina. Um, concerning the, the the global economy after COVID, you know, it's it's difficult because you need to define, you know, after COVID because, I, you know, personally, I don't think that COVID is just going to be out of the headlines or out of the politicians' mouths in the next 12 to 18 months, to be honest with you, specifically because the global economy is still reeling from supply chain disruptions, uh, fiscal policies, uh, political policies that have gone bad and created doom loops. So, you know, I, I, I just don't I just don't think that we're just going to be away from COVID in the near term. I know for the summer, the Europeans and even the Americans and Canadians, they decided to open because you just, you know, you can't keep people locked up for the summer. But once the flu season starts, my fear is that COVID again is going to resurge in the in the politicians mouths and probably take a little bit of a hit on the global economy on the second half of the year. Mm -hmm. I don't disagree. Um, I, I, thanks, Valina. I, I don't disagree with that at all. Um, and I think that would be, you will tend to find that more in those economies or regions where there are still problems uh, economically and probably with the supply chains. They're going to... COVID is a wonderful excuse, one for maintaining certain higher levels of control in the population, but it's also a wonderful excuse for excusing policy error. And, you know, from wearing an economics hat, uh, you, you are, your first question was, what are nightmares? My nightmares are basically policy error, inflation and inflation. So it's a combination of that. And I, I, hence, we have that mix of politics and economics. And I think Albert, um, my, I always work from the, the basis when the US sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. That's an economic and market saying. And I think, you know, um, Albert's point on doom loop is just a great way of starting. Um, that's a reintroduction of Albert because he, he phrased it earlier so beautifully that we can, we can mix the politics and the economics perfectly in this discussion. The, fr the phrase was? It was your well, I mean, you know, the Biden administration and uh, honestly, even most of the EU, they want to make the, the politics work but they also need the economics to work. But the problem is because they counter each other sometimes, most of the time, that they create a doom loop, 
right? Be like, you know, specifically if you look at the unemployment rate, which was a big, a big miss in the United States, you know, you have the Biden administration that wants to keep these unemployment benefits going because, I mean, realistically, that just pays people to vote for them. But on the on the back end, it's causing businesses to not have workers, which is reducing, you know, reducing the demand side of the economy, which, you know, stops any kind of recovery effort uh, going forward. So that's that's what which the problem is. Where I that's where I end up starting to agree with Larry Summers, which is something I thought I would never do in my professional <laughs> life. Because Albert and I were talking during two Fridays ago, the unemployment data, and it came out and Albert was going, oh my God, that's a huge miss. I wasn't looking at the unemployment or the non-farm payroll. I was looking at the average hourly earnings because for a year we've been talking about inflation due to supply chain. Now that came out hugely higher that was a shock that was an equivalent shock higher as per the cpi and ppi that came out this week and i worry that going back to the doom loop concept that i've just introduced politics of paying people unemployment benefit ue you know universal basic income so on and so forth we shouldn't forget that historically where there has been a real inflation problem. It's been a combination of fiscal dominance, 19, mid 1960s with LBJ, Great Society, that, that, were, that is the equivalent of what we're getting for infrastructure, which I call the Green Gulf Plan. And the war expenditure on Vietnam, that's the COVID expenditure. So we've that's got, great. but this is all on steroids currently today. <laughs> now, combine that with the fact that we have an administration that is very pro-union. Now, back in the mid-60s to the 70s, we got, particularly in the UK uh, as a great example, you had wage pull in extremists because labor was so unionized. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where you've got a bit of a political economic doom loop. You can see the power of the unions in the US already with the teachers union reluctance to go back to school despite it being a political talking point on both sides of the aisle yeah, so I, that worries me that's what yeah, my is the inflation and it's all building up uh, so maybe just to interrupt shortly before we move to concrete examples such as the u.s uh, economy uh, so we have the um, on the one side the developed economies but then we have also a kind of a dichotomy between the developed economies and emerging markets as well maybe this is also something that we should uh, touch upon uh, shortly but uh, let me just ask a follow-up question which is do you actually share the optimistic uh, the op optimistic um, prognosis of uh, some of the global institutions uh, that we are going to witness uh, uh, positive uh, so growth economic growth global economic growth we've seen the analysis of the international monetary funds and other actually analytical organizations and actually they say we are going to witness now quite of a you know economic growth do you do you share this actually because what you actually pointed out is uh, going in the other direction more in this 
doom doomsday outlook. So we have a kind of a, a conflict, I think, also in the expectations and in the anticipations. On the one side, uh, the dividing line between politics and economics, as Albert pointed out, and on the other side, also some very worrisome indicators, as Nick pointed out, uh, as regards uh, inflation, for instance. Well, well, I, it's, all, I, I, it's, all, it's all relative, you know, it, it's, we've got to think about real growth, i.e. GDP growth, net of inflation. And, you know, last year we were looking at, we were talking about the roaring 20s. Um, but I worry about, that was with a different political outlook. Now we've, you know, we went through the election cycle at the end of last year and I worry about this government interference and the fiscal dominance weighing down on the upside for the economic growth. And we always have to take these IMF and OECD forecasts somewhat with a pinch of salt. They've been, you know, only until recently they were still negative UK and expecting the UK to underperform Argentina. Well, you know, all evidence pointed a complete, completely different. Uh, and now there's expectations the UK could be number one in the G7. Um, but the, the, the interesting aspect of it is we've got this new fiscal dominance and we all know that pushing on the string, you spend more, the government spends more, it pushes on the string. It's not the world's greatest allocator of resources. And that could hold us back, plus also the inflation side. But we are just going to get, you know, we take these forecasts, of course we were going to snap back. But are we going to go above pre-COVID? economic output. Mm -hmm. UK is for now forecast potentially sometime next year. Uh, I think likewise the US. The EU, that's a, you know, if they miss another summer, it's going to be really problematic, particularly for the Mediterranean countries. Albert, yeah. I interrupted. Yeah, Albert, okay. I mean, I, I, what's I, your you take? Know, well, going back to like the growth rates, that the e, you know, the IMF and whatever three-letter, you know, three-letter institution you want to put out there, you know, these the, we're coming out from COVID, so they're saying, oh, you know, our growth is six percent or nine percent or whatever number that they throw out there. But these are, I mean, you're coming back from zero almost, so they're not they're not real numbers, right? And then they take and then they calculate inflation without really taking into account food and energy inflation on top of that, because, you know, we mm. had, what, what did we have 4.2% inflation in the United States. Realistically, that's almost 9%. If you take those things into account, mm. that's stunning. Right. And, and, and as Nick has been pointing out about wage inflation, I mean, you have to have you, the people are, companies are starting to pay people to even get interviews and raising, you know, raising wages, 10, 15%. Well, that's going to trickle down into every single product that, comes onto the market and, and, you know, with demand rising for, you know, somewhat of a reopening or somewhat of a recovery. But, you know, I don't see unemployment coming down from double digits for the next 12 months. So these growth rates, you know, compared to pre-COVID, I think they're just fantasy that they're, they're talking right now, just basically to give politicians cover at the moment. Mm -hmm. I think the nightmares, one of the nightmares I have, Melina, is... I think the central banks have got themselves into such a corner. And if you, if, if inflation goes as far, I, my view on inflation is we, we could have some really scary numbers over the next six months. And then ultimately as certain effects come out, 
we will settle down at an inflation rate in the US of between three and 4%. Remember that, that target area, slightly above or below for the Fed is 2%. Mm -hmm. What's the Fed gonna do? Um, and I've got this sense that at some point they are going to have to reintroduce the idea. Back in the 60s and 70s, we had boom bust with Volcker and other central bankers. I'm not suggesting people can't take bust anymore in, in the current world. You know, it's, it's not as somewhere where you can hide from a microaggression. That would be a quite a big aggression. Um, but I think they're going to have to start to accept volatility of economic output, even with certain quarters slowing down to negative for a while and then coming back. Because otherwise, inflation is going to go out of control. And it it's less... I mean, the, the Americans are, as a, a, a population, not used to inflation, but it's less important for the Americans because it is the reserve currency. It fl will flow through to Europe, won't be excluded. Emerging markets, if the interest rate market goes crazy in the US, mm. that's the end of emerging market oh, policymaking. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. you know, this is why I say when the US needs is the rest of the world catch up the cold. Actually, emerging markets will catch severe bronchitis if not pneumonia by almost covid so, you could say and it's obvious that it's no longer just about politics and economics but now you've named it it's also about the fiscal uh policy of uh specifically of central banks on so monetary using monetary actually instruments to uh stimulate global economy so do you think that this kind of trend will continue um following the COVID 19 and what is actually the exit of uh from this uh, from this kind of poli uh, policy i mean in the long run because it's more or less obvious that it's uh, is an experiment that hasn't been uh, that hasn't been actually uh, tried before you nicknamed uh, several times uh, the 60s the 70s but we didn't have quantitative easing uh, during the 60s and the 70s and actually what will be the opt out uh, strategy of the central banks yeah but 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 so so although you point out that we didn't have quantitative easing we had other instruments like price controls back in the 60s and 70s yeah. right you and can't exchange rates as well yeah and fix until 71 yeah you, so implementing price controls right now to combat uh inflation would be an absolute beautiful thing for the politics of the biden administration but the reality is those would be a nightmare to roll back I mean, I discussed this with Harold actually on the phone maybe about a, a week and a half ago, trying to trying to determine what was you know correlating between the '60s and '70s and today. And he said price controls, inept leadership is the one of the other biggest problems. So I mean, how do they how do they exit out of this? I mean, how do you separate the central bank's fiscal policy, monetary policies versus politics? Because realistically, those Fed chairs and central bank chairs are political appointees serving at the behest of whoever whoever appointed them, right? So after and becoming more Powell, politicized, right? And more politicized. I mean, I mean the, the the myth or the fantasy that the central banks are independent from the political uh, political positions is just is just ludicrous to me. I, it's just absolutely crazy. Uh, Jerome Powell is most likely going to take blame for the for an upcoming uh, correction in the market in the fall because he's a Trump guy. Who do they replace that with? Most likely Brainard, 
which is mm-hmm. <laughs> one of the full one of the things that mother. keeps me up at night. Yeah, that that would be full blown MMT. That would be and, the ultimate yeah. experiment. And may, well, maybe let's put some hierarchy uh, to the issue because this is, I think, also important. We, if we speak about, uh, if we talk about uh, central banks, there is one specific central bank and the rest is a function of it, right? So it's about the Federal Reserve. And if we speak about global reserve currency, there is one global reserve currency, which is, as we know, uh, still possible because of the global power projection capabilities of one sole systemic power, which is the United States, which actually still controls all these interconnected flows of uh, goods, of services, of capital, of meanwhile data, right? And um, it basically is uh, more or less still about, uh, you know, US, uh, US dominated or US controlled maritime routes, supply chains, transport um, routes uh, and networks that actually enable these flows. Of, co- of course. This is, that's what... I think this is an important clarification because uh, often we are witnesses of uh, conversations that actually do not uh, make the... The, the make this clarification which is actually that if you don't understand the hierarchy of uh, you know of the processes which leads to what and which is a function of what i think mm-hmm. it somehow actually does not do service to the right. uh, to there the is. logic of uh, of of uh, the conclusions there's a, one other aspect of the dollar reserve currency and any reserve currency is the us's comfort with running deficits without a deficit you can't have a reserve currency this is the uh fallacy behind anybody that argues the remimbi will be a reserve currency they don't want to run mm-hmm. deficits they like their surpluses the, this is why the euro failed to challenge the, the us dollar because with mercantilist germany all deficits are not acceptable so mm-hmm. you've got to that's key as well and people but, forget that is but isn't it behind... sorry isn't it also that the euro cannot challenge the dollar because it's a function of the dollar it's a function of the euro dollar system which means that actually the euro is a product of the dollar based monetary system so of course valina that's absolutely you 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 explained it absolutely perfectly there's no better explanation about how why the united states dollar is the reserve currency and will be the reserve currency for the remainder of our lifetimes you have the fed you have the Anglosphere banks and everything else that branches out of there. Every single country needs dollars in reserve to make sure that their country don't doesn't go into hyperinflation. And people forget about this. They think that because the United States the United States has twenty one trillion dollars in debt that we can experience hyperinflation, but that's not accurate because you have it's a you know currencies are paired trades. What are we going to hyperinflate against ourselves? We can print twenty trillion dollars tomorrow and service all the debt that we own to ourselves. Because everything's priced in dollars. Of course. Right? That's yeah. it. Whereas, you know, if you go back to people say, oh, we're going, there's a Weimarization of the US. No, there isn't, because nothing was priced in Reichmarks. <laughs> no, that, <laughs> that, was, that's an also, that was also in a time of multipolarity with, with, with nations on equal military footing. That does not exist today. They're not even close. Right. Exactly. Which, of course, means that if there is another global or let's say if there is another state actor that seeks to act globally, it will need it's the facilitation of its own networks, um, be it monetary, financial, 
capital networks and then of course its own connectivities uh, its own transport routes uh, to basically uh, make sure that the flow of uh, goods of uh, services and so on uh, is secured along these yeah, uh, supply chains. That's, that's that's exactly right. I mean, the, the uh, I mean, you you know, you grew up in the Soviet the um, ecosphere. Uh, the Soviet Union had Budapest as its financial center, and then it branched out into its uh, Soviet influenced world. That's what they, that was the only challenge at that time, and they imploded. Leaving and the Soviet United Union States. was not entangled within the U.S. Uh, led uh, networks. That's very important. Actually, that's very important uh, argument that uh, often analysts forget. Uh, if the Soviet, I mean, the collapse of the Soviet Union did not uh, bring about a systemic, major systemic crisis to the global system. No, it actually is... led to a crisis, political, economic one, within the Soviet bloc, because the countries which were interconnected within the Soviet Union were dependent on the center. And of course, they were left uh, behind from one day yeah. to the next, but it didn't it, uh, it, result it, in a global in a global system crash. Yeah, and, and, and it's actually quite comical to me because the creation of the Euro dollar actually was, was initiated by the Soviet Union because they didn't trust their own currency and they wanted to take dollars out of you know the United States for fear of being or frozen. So they took dollars and put them in Budapest, therefore creating the euro dollar. Oh, you it know? was uh, it was uh, it was of course uh, no secret that uh, everyone was stockpiling dollars actually <laughs> during the Soviet times, and yeah. once uh, once the countries were experiencing hyperinflation situation, uh, the black market was actually floated not by other currencies but by by by, by dollars. But let's let's uh, this was now an interesting an interesting uh, deviation, uh, and I think. Uh, a necessary clarification. Um, let's go back to some to to to, to 2021. Now, uh, given your anticipation for the American and uh, British and the European Union economies, what are actually the three most important geoeconomic? Uh, you can also add, if you like, geopolitical signals that keep you actually awake at night. Inflation, <laughs> um, the U.S. sneezing, and the rest of the world catching a cold, verging on pneumonia uh, at the margins in EM, um, and policy error. Now, the interesting thing, this takes us back to something we just mentioned, and Albert will uh, fill in the in the holes that I leave. But um, we've made a lot of noise about Anglosphere, and they are. Still, so we're fully aware that there are regular conversations. I think it's bi-weekly, every two weeks, Albert. Yeah. Between yes. the Anglosphere central banks. Now, mm -hmm. the Anglosphere central banks, it it, it won't be necessary. I mean, obviously, there's talks between the various chairs and governors, but this is at a working level, the market teams and the economics teams, and their great fear is inflation, particularly commodity inflation. Mm -hmm. So there, there has been, and we called it about two and a half months ago, um, a desire for the Anglospheric banks, central banks, to start tapering and then tightening. Now, when that includes the Fed, I, I suspect the Fed in August at Jackson Hole 
starts to talk about the taper. And it's an easy taper. They can stop buying mortgage banks security given the state of the housing market in the US, right? Um, but we've had the Bank of Canada taper. We've had the UK taper. Noises that the RBA in Australia would like to taper. New Zealand's an outlier. Uh, now, occasionally, who joins these conversations, from what I've been told, is the Bank of Japan. They're all watching signals on inflation. So that keeps them up at night. Okay. And I suspect that that those that those parts of the various central banks are the monetarist parts. So they're also concerned about fiscal dominance as well. And I think beautifully expressed by Larry Summers, Bill Dudley, ex-head of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. All this inflation is coming much faster than they were worried about. So I think uh, Mohammed El Arian, who was an old, you know, uh, someone that writes well, managed poorly, I suspect. Uh, but his writing recently, he was talking about maybe the Fed has to shift its view. And this goes back to the idea, it's all led by the Fed, but I would watch what's going on in the UK. Because I've, I've often said politically, the UK leads the US in terms of big trends. So you've just had that big trend in the UK where basically the Conservative Party is now the work, Working People's Party and the Labour Party is the party of the elites. From a Bank of England point of view, um, they've started to taper. They are coming out with, you know, Andrew Haldane, who's retiring as chief economist, had this coiled spring look at the UK economy. Um, and it certainly looks like it's going to be a coiled spring. We suspect that the Bank of England are already, NERP is forgotten, even if it's in the toolbox, but is, is making enough noise to say, look, tape, we, we know tapering is coming and we know the end of QE is coming. Next step is, when is there going to be a rate rise because of inflation? Mm -hmm. uh, our anticipation is second half of next year, first rate rise in the UK. Mm. It'll be an interesting, that's a good bank, given the Fed and the UK and the Bank of England work very closely together, to see what happens with central bank policy in the Anglosphere countries. What does that mean for Europe? This is where my nightmare comes, the ECB. Um, mm. We know that without the ECB, Italy is in default. We know that the pressure, pressures are there on the fiscal front. I would also suggest that the EU will firm up the stability pact because there is not and will not be enough MPs in the Bundestag in Germany to vote through and enter the fiscal debt break because you need two thirds majority. It's not mm -hmm. going to happen. The only two parties that support that are the Greens and the, and the Linker. The SPD, Schultz came out last week and said, we've got to start looking at the fiscal debt break and bringing that back in. So if, that, if that's the case, you've got all these, you know, even France has got a debt issue now. So the minute, the big danger for Europe, and this is going to be really problematic, is when does, when does the e, ECB stop the QE? Because then who's going to finance the profligate southern states, including, I would say, France? Um, and what I'm hearing there, and this is the big problem, and they're not involved in these calls with the Anglo-Syrian Central Bank, is you've got the frugal representatives, obviously Biden, but you have 
the not the Dutch uh, ECB member, the Finnish ECB member. You can go through the usual suspects. They would like QE to end soon, sooner than the others. There'll be an agreement with the Monetary Policy Review that QE, the PEP, will carry on to a certain date. But it's a date, and that's the price that the that Lagarde and the Doves are going to have to pay to the Hawks is to set a firm date. Otherwise, you're going to get a split council. And a split you can imagine the turmoil of a split council on the European markets. Mm -hmm. The other thing that the Europeans have got as a problem is as we go through this process, they will realize that they need London as a financial center way more than they politically state. This is that political doom loop. They, they, yeah. You're not going to have finance. We're not going to give you equivalents. Oh, we need We need them. <laughs> equivalents will suddenly come. So there's one of my nightmares, and I'm going to hand that over to uh, Albert to disinterpret. Albert, well, yes. What well, keeps you awake? Does something keeps, <laughs> keep you awake in the night? <laughs> well, obviously, we've already gone over inflation multiple times, but food inflation is one of my big things of what to worry about, mm -hmm. but also how that relates to the Chinese and Indian com competition, uh, competition for water, competition for food. I mean, mm -hmm. the Chinese are in a protein shortage. You know, they're the Asian flu for, for, uh, hogs has been, um, stepping up. They have to fish, they fish unbelievably and illegally globally. Uh, in the South China Seas, they go into Madagascar. You know, the, the Indians are not going to take lightly to that. The Philippines mm -hmm. are not going to take lightly to that. My concern is if the Chinese get desperate, do they have skirmishes on the sea, on the open seas, which would then affect shipping, disrupting mm -hmm. shipping, creating more inflation down the road into the, in the emerging markets? I mean, that's one of, that's one of my one of my bigger fears. On top of that, it would be mismanagement or just bad foreign policy by the Biden administration trying to trying to interfere or trying to solve issues where, you know, ideologically they're just not on the right side. I mean, if we just look at the Middle East now. All of a sudden, the Middle East has completely exploded. Mm. I mean, North uh, Korea uh, also. The North signals Korea. coming from North Korea, I mean, uh, these are obviously two signals, very important two political signals that things are once again on fire. Yeah, and, and this is, this, in my view, this is completely beneficial for the Russians while they move into Africa and, you know, solidify their natural resources. And in the Latin America, the Chinese are having problems with food security, getting desperate in the Indian Ocean. The, the Biden administration is mismanaging the Middle East, you know, so we're going to look, we're going to be looking at food inflation, energy inflation, just, you know, continuing on into the, in, into 2022, in my opinion, that's what's keeping me up at night, what the nightmare mm -hmm. scenarios are. Well, based on your, uh, on your scenario about the surging food prices, uh, are we going to witness a similar scenario with the uh, Arab Spring in 2011 when we had this, immense surge of uh, food prices. Do you think that uh, certain, because right now the Mediterranean is uh, obviously one of these regions where you have uh, multiple regional actors constellations, uh, various um, conflicting interests and uh, based on geoeconomics and geopolitics, even the European Union member states are not on the same page and are actually 
witnessing, so basically joining various, uh, various blocks, uh, just to give one example with Libya. Do you think that this might result in this kind of um, similar, yes. similar scenario? Absolutely. I mean, the worst thing that could happen to politicians in the political system is inflation in food and energy, especially food. You know, mm -hmm. you're looking at emerging markets with already a food problem. I mean, America is the breadbasket of the world and, you know, parts of Russia and the, with wheat and whatnot. But I mean, if you start you start going down the ladder to these emerging markets in Africa or Latin America, well, Latin America, not so much, but Africa, and India and the Central Asia, you're going to have problems. You know, you starve people and people are going to riot immediately. You know, so I, I do see if food inflation does get out of hand, uh, I, I could see some African nations start to rise up and cause problems. Is that a risk, sociological risk for the CCP in China? Because there was this, oh. you know, mm -hmm. yesterday I tweeted that article about the primary Chinese organization for disseminating agricultural data mm -hmm. has gone offline. Uh, of course it's a problem. Mm -hmm. Of course it's a problem. It's one, one over a billion people that are like protein, they're hungry people, they're protein hungry, mm -hmm. and they're struggling right now. Uh, Valina, you had um, a gentleman, a huntsman on, you know, that talked about supply chains. Yes, we talked and, about no, supply chains, yeah. And, and he, uh, he's, stand-up guy I really like him um, but he's the one that touches on food security along with me for the longest time like china's food insecurity is a problem it is a festering problem that could undermine the entire ccp uh, hierarchy at some point well uh, i think the majority uh does not realize that uh, when it comes to china it's not so much about global power projection in first place but uh, rather a facilitation of uh, political power within uh, the borders of china how to actually keep this population that is witnessing i don't know how countless times per year uh, riots or any kind of uh, natural catastrophes or whatsoever how to keep this population actually under control and how to actually prevent uh, any instabilities domestic instabilities and this is actually what xi jinping is going to be uh, to be certainly dealing with right following now the post covid-19 recovery yeah just we we have to understand that Xi is there at the behest of certain elite families, and he is there to serve those interests first. If he if he violates their interests, if there's enough families in uh, Guangdong or you know other provinces that want him out, he will be out. As simple as that, you know. And people have this under have this misconception that he is a dictator and all all powerful. Well, I mean to a degree, but that's because he has he has a network of elite families doing that for him. Initially, he had. Um, Wayne Keyshawn is an enforcer. I don't know who the new guy, I forgot the new guy's name. It escapes me at the moment. But now he's got a new guy that's an enforcer and he has to keep these people in line. You know how that is back in the old so Eastern Bloc. Keeping, keeping, keeping the elite in line is always going to be a failed prospect. They'll, they'll eventually replace him with somebody. Well, we've witnessed a lot of uh, people being imprisoned or actually sentenced to death uh, from the political elites, uh, communist elites. Uh, due to corruption, but in fact, uh, we know that most of them were also opponents of uh, Xi Jinping. So actually, this is the way how, you know, the circles around uh, him will 
probably be further facilitated. And uh, once again, we also witnessed during the escalation phase with, uh, between Russia and Ukraine that just coincidentally, uh, during exactly this period, uh, Putin, the Russian president Putin, also managed to sign a law allowing him now to run for uh, further to mandate. So basically, we see that on that side, uh, there is a certain effort to, uh, you know, to facilitate, to consolidate political power. But, yeah. uh, but, but, but Putin has his own succession. He has problems, too, because he has succession problems. They have the oligarchs that support him, Sechen, Tymchenko, and uh, maybe half a dozen other ones. They have offspring that they have aspirations to be leader of Russia for their own personal own personal aspirations. So what's going to happen when those those circles start to conflict and they see that there's a succession problem in uh, succession problem in uh, Moscow? You know, that's going to be bloody. And I don't think anybody looks at that yet. <laughs> Historically, it's always bloody in Moscow. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But, yeah, but I mean, I, uh, I but I think I, I claim that still uh, the 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 um, directions of foreign security and defense policy won't change much, no matter who is actually who is actually uh, in uh, in uh, you know in power. So even if we take an opposite leader as Navalny, if he would manage, which of course is a very unrealistic scenario, but let's 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 think about it for a second. Even he would actually be in favor of uh, annexation of Crimea and certain foreign and security policy choices that Russia made. And this is something that I think often is um, neglected uh, in Western analysis. Well, that's the old history of Russia, isn't it? That even Tsarist Russia was insecure, so they kept increasing the borders and increasing the size of the country. So that's a historical, there's your history repeating. I mean, I, but, I, I, I was just listening to the two of you there, and I'm sitting here thinking two things. One, within China itself, it is a sclerotic regime that is fragile. People don't realize there is a fragility to the regime. Food inflation could be the spark that, that, that sets it alight. But there's an interesting, and this is your area, actually, um, Vanina. Back to commodities, we've got a everything's green. Even the central bank is promoting green, which is that crossover to politics. I mean, I don't know what a central bank can do to impose green on, on, on an economy, but the need for green and environmental um, product puts certain countries with large deposits of rare earths and the you know, things such as coal, cobalt, lithium, etc. strategically important. Well, there's one that could cause a real problem between the, the Russians and the Chinese, which is Afghanistan, over and above mm -hmm. Africa, which is problematic too. Mm -hmm. And I actually, back to the inflation nightmare, this whole emphasis on green from the EU recovery fund, mm -hmm. uh, Biden administration, you, everybody, that is inflationary. That, those costs are coming down to the end consumer. And, and that's where I find inflation and politics crossover beautifully. It's a beautiful crossover. But I think mm -hmm. that, that actually can create some hotspots geopolitically. Mm -hmm. Would I be right there, Albert? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the Chinese actually realized this because I believe recently they were not in favor of the United States leaving because the United States gives the Chinese trade 
free security within the Afghanistan. Mm. Now, for them to step in into Afghanistan, I mean, that's a joke. They can't even they can't even step into certain areas of uh, Africa without the Russians. So, what mm. makes them think they're going to go into Afghanistan, which is exponentially more difficult to control? And speaking of greening the global economy, that's also interesting because I think it's going to be linked to another uh, to another trigger that uh, you've mentioned already: uh, reconfiguration of supply chains. Because you, if you are dependent on certain uh, rare earths and minerals, and you want uh, to actually green your economy, but how is this going to happen if you actually will increase these dependencies? And we know also that the reconfiguration will take time will take a lot of time it's technically a very complex process it's not going to happen in one or two years so you yeah, are and it's, inflationary process, that and it's inflationary so that means that on the one side uh, developed economies want to spend trillions of dollars euros or whatsoever in greening the economy so decarbonizing their economies without actually securing these uh, global supply chains without actually deviating from China and other dependencies, without having the necessary the necessary rare uh, earths and minerals. And I think that this is a kind of a construct, um, construct more or less, a kind of a wishful thinking that uh, conflicts uh, reality and realpolitic. So actually you increase uh, dependencies. Interestingly enough, on the rare earth side of things, it's not that countries in the West don't have access to rare earth. They do. It's that 80% of global refining of rare earths, which is incredibly environmentally unfriendly. That's the point. Yeah. Is in China. It's, it's now, a dirty business. Nobody wants to really, do it. We've had, you know, if you go back over the last five years, we've been talking about decoupling, 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 right? COVID is the ultimate decoupling. It speeded everything up. It is effectively, COVID did for decoupling what social media has done to news. You know, headline, out. And, and with all the, the impacts and negative impacts and positive, the, COVID has created the decoupling momentum at hyperspeed to what people were planning for. And, but you are now seeing certain Western countries. I think the country, the, the, the area that's most exposed to decoupling and lack of access is going to be Europe again. Um, because, you know, if you look at what, here's a great allegory here. Europe is governed by the precautionary principle. That's what affected, that's what, that's what affected Europe's uptake, the EU's uptake on the AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson. It's the precautionary principle. They won't take the risk. Whereas, in the Anglosphere, you have the innovation principle where you innovation is a risk. So that precautionary principle will slow down any effort for the EU to become independent on the refinery of rare earths. They may have access to rare earths, but it's the refinery that's key. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, that's a crucial differentiator. And that's why, you know, I, I speak for Albert, I may be wrong here, Albert, myself, Harold as well. That's why we think the reconfiguration is going to be led by the Anglosphere, where the innovation principle prevails, and in fact, Schumpeter's creative destruction is in action, effectively. So I think 
the green side will be led and also you know the other thing that we have to figure out in decoupling is you can't buy the solar panels from china so where are they going to be made so there has to i mean i i i'm i'm pro environment i just think the economics of things like the green girls plan just misses a lot of the proper processes that need to go through uh, yeah, so it'll be interesting I, I, to see. Yeah, Sorry, I agree. I, no, I agree. Now, going back to what Belinda said is like you know reconfiguring the supply chains, uh, creating other issues, systemic issues. Again, that's just a doom. Another another doom loop that they're creating for themselves. They want the politics to work, but they don't want the economics to to have to do it. You know, so mm -hmm. it's it's, it's and, problematic. And in fact, the infrastructure, the infrastructure includes the legislative infrastructure. Which is again where I think the Anglosphere prevail under common law versus codified law, Roman law. It, it's less, it's more hostile to a creative destruction phase and re reconfiguration. So I think that's where you'll see that. This is why Ang my view is the Anglosphere countries will lead and the EU, for example, will. Well, you can see it already. It's making that choice to veer towards the Anglosphere because, mm -hmm. you know, the pushback against China is increasing. I mean, this news over the last week on China threatening Sweden and Ericsson. So, I mean, you know, these wolf warriors are creating friction that's not working. And the mm -hmm. vaccine diplomacy is failing too. So... I, I yeah, the reaction was uh, the reaction was uh, by the way what you mentioned about uh, Chinese activities in Europe uh, in, within the European uh, member states is that uh, now the investment deal was put on hold, and uh, what this led actually to the unprecedented agreement on uh, starting negotiations or actually restarting the negotiations which were put on hold uh, in 2013 between the European Union and India. And right now there are negotiations on a free trade air, uh, agreement, which is actually higher as compared to the investment deal. And this is, even if it's a symbolic, I think this is very important to understand how actually these Chinese activities led to the opposite of what they were intending. Yeah, because I mean, the there, just quickly, sorry, Albert, and I'll leave it to you afterwards. You're right. Moving away from China towards India is definitely a dynamic within the EU. I still think that their UK, you know, that completely, in, there's something about Brexit. So the UK announcing its deal with India, I was sitting there waiting. Oh, okay. So there's a problem with the China deal. Watch how the EU will reignite the India deal because, oh, the UK has just had a deal. <laughs> so, it's that's why I think the Anglosphere, either by intent or default, does do some leading, or a lot of leading. Over to you, Albert. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, no, it's that's completely correct. I mean, I think India is the key to both the the EU and the United States of decoupling from the Chinese as much as possible. Let's be realistic. You can't decouple everything from the Chinese. It's just impossible. Mm -hmm. But you know, going back to the trade deal with that that's failing with the Chinese and the EU. I mean, the Chinese only rely on intimidation, no matter where. That's the only thing that they have, and that's the only thing that's ever worked for them in the emerging markets. You cannot treat the European Union as an emerging market. They're much more sophisticated. They have much more resources, and they have actual 
you know, stable societies that they can't be fractured by Chinese intervention. It just doesn't work. And you're seeing this now. I mean, the EU is finally, you know, after long years of calls from the from the United States and other nations to hit back at China, they're talking about the the tension of minorities and in China, the the climate policies that China violates on a daily basis every single year, which is you know un unbelievable that nobody's talked about that beforehand. So, I mean, the EU is doing the proper things: go to India, tag along with the Anglosphere, you know, stick stick with the supply chains and the security of the U.S. dollar, and you know, advance and advance in that way. Advance the Eastern Eastern Europe is open for business, for God's sakes. You know, advance that. I mean, you have you have you have plenty of chances in Albania, Bulgaria, Romania, you know, uh, southern southern Italy, parts of Spain that, that they need development. You know, you don't mm -hmm. need to sit there and try to chase the, the, the Chinese for a few bucks, you know, just because they're buying a lot of Mercedes for Germany. Mm -hmm. That's interesting point, Albert, because I was just told uh, last week that, uh, for instance, uh, the industry in Mumbai, they, of course, they would uh, seek further relations with uh, UK and the Anglosphere because this is the world they always known. They don't know the European Union and the member states. They want actually, this is what I was told, they would like actually to expand to Central and Eastern Europe because they know that this is a region that is going to experience a lot of growth, but they don't know how. They don't know the actors. They don't understand the system there. So I think that this is one way how actually connectors might help to, you know, to uh, a little bit merge the gap. Uh, and uh, there is also question, interesting question now linked to India. And I'm seeing, I'm seeing the chat room, and there is there are so many questions. I would like to uh, to cover some of them or as many as possible. Uh, yeah. There is a comment about India that it doesn't have the infrastructure to scale at capacities. To serve the world, do you think that this might be one way how actually the Anglosphere and the European Union might merge? Uh, that means, of course, uh, how to decouple away from China in the Indo-Pacific region to facilitate actually a Western uh, connectivity infrastructure and uh, supply chains. Well, Valina, you and I discussed this, I believe, a year and a half ago, maybe even more of how the European, how I was completely disappointed with the European Union of why they didn't have their own BRI style network overseas connecting India and even the Caribbean and Latin America or even part and even parts of Africa. They, they have the overseas networks, the, the historical networks. You know, mm -hmm. I don't want to hear about colonialism back in the 50s and 60s. That's just, that's just ludicrous at this point, right? The European Union should have gotten together and they should have made a BRI style competitor to the Chinese and what the Chinese were doing, specifically in India and other emerging markets. The problem becomes competition between the French, the Germans and other states that they want their they want a bigger slice than they're being negotiated with. You know, who's going to who's going to supply the money? Who's going to supply who's going to get the contracts? Who's going to supply the military mm. component because you need the military component to secure mm. infrastructure in those regions? What they should have done, they should have piggybacked with the United States and said, "Hey, we got to come together and do this." But Again, and, so, and who is going to capitalize because these are long-term projects that means uh, once you start investing, once you start building up, 
there is going to be another politician who is going to capitalize on the on the outcome because it uh, takes more than four years to build an infrastructure. Course, that's, that's, that's the cost. Don't you think this is actually, everybody talks about the Brexit cost of the UK. This is actually one of the Brexit costs of the EU. That's exactly what it is. Because people forget, and again, I'm like Albert, I don't want to talk about empire or colonialism or any of that nonsense. I'm looking forward. Get over mm -hmm. it. Get over it. We've got to look forward with positivity. Get over all the negativity. It doesn't serve mm -hmm. anybody except retrograde. Uh, but there is an example already going on as a, for competition with the BRI led by japan backed up by australia and the us yeah now that's mm -hmm. in the far east but it that's a start and remember if you think about japan strategically they have a desire to join the five eyes you've got the quad but japan has a desire to join the five eyes so that tells me and and in fact my information is that the us was working very closely with japan in terms of offering alternative to the bri and that alternative would actually also included the necessary legal advice to extricate some of these emerging market countries from the debt obligations with the chinese note that one of the things that's been a problem with the paris club or the imf debt renegotiations is these chinese obligations and the fact that the chinese don't want to play get play ball in any debt. okay so that's where the the legal experts go in and help those countries at the same time but there is an example building and um, that to me pushes everybody again towards that model if the japanese want to join the five eyes they're clearly an anglosphere adjacent country with great desire to be part of the block so yeah that's quite big isn't it us japan UK, that's become starts to become pretty forceful yeah, it does. It does, Nick. But like specifically, where you know the question is for India, and I believe that the European, the UK, and the EU need to come together and lead that. You know, yeah. they they need to it's lead that. They awesome. need to they hmm. need to invest in the ports. They need to invest in the Indian infrastructure. They have the legal frameworks, as Nick has specified, the common law. You know, and t and ties to angles, right? So they will have the financing, and they have they have plenty of contacts, right? And the Europeans would 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 benefit from from Indian trade deals and infrastructure for generations you know yes. getting away from the Chinese. Yeah. so they need they need to come together and just put their differences aside for the next three four years and just do it yeah Look, and the, the very fact that uh, i the think UK that of course the uh, uk is leading uh, uk and as nick mentioned uh, quad uh, japan australia united states uh, india they are in the lead, but I think that the European Union will try to join, at least when it comes to maritime security. These are the very same US-controlled maritime routes that go from Europe, Mediterranean, through the Straits, um, uh, connecting to the Indian Ocean, exactly. And this is in the interest of the European Union also to secure these maritime routes, because uh, if uh, the opposite happens, uh, there are no, uh, there is no alternative for the European trade. Actually, in fact, uh, more than eighty percent of the European trade goes through these uh, routes. So this is in the very same interest. I think that what's going to logically happen is to try to join, in terms of military, uh, military, um, you know, drills and security cooperation and so on and so forth. And there is actually no argument against it. I think that was the 
rationale behind the Lancaster, Lancaster House Treaty between the British and the French, the military treaty. Yeah, partly. Yeah. That was yeah, but the French, the, the French is leading uh, also when it comes to certain security. Uh, so, uh, uh, when it comes to the security agenda, given that we are going to have uh, elections in Germany in September, that means at least for a year Germany is going to be facing a situation of political um, reconfiguration, who is going to be the new chancellor, how is going to be, how the new government is going to be built. It means that Germany is going to be out of the equation. And that means for France, the pressure until the election in 2022 to lead the way, because they cannot afford themselves to wait for another year or two to not take decisions in security and defense field. And of course, they will try to, agree with the British on certain security issues, but uh, the other ways, of course, also to lead the European Union machinery. Uh, so that is, I think, uh, one of certainly one of the regions in the Pacific. And there is also question regarding New Zealand about Quad and also about the role of New Zealand in the Anglosphere. What is your take about that? <laughs> Which one do you, you want to lead this one? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I was leaving that to you. It's up to you. you I know, know a lot of the, Kiwi friends. So oh, well, I don't have Kiwi friends at the moment. I'm probably not going to have a lot of Kiwi friends after this. But uh, my, <laughs> my, my distaste for the, for the leadership in uh, New Zealand is quite clear. I mean, they're trying to sit there and play a cute little game of uh, trying to get away from the United States, being anti-American, because it's been fashionable in New Zealand, let's be honest, for a while now, and try to try to get into the Chinese sphere, right? Someone must have told her, must have told exactly. Jacinda of how how finance actually works and what it means to stay to get away from the dollar because because she did a U-turn, I think like two weeks ago, Nick, was it like two weeks ago? Yeah. She's like, oh no, we want and, a free trade deal with the United States now all of a sudden because and, now and actually, she knows that she, she is going on a, a major tour. This is a country that's isolated itself with COVID. She is going on a major uh, diplomatic tour of the right countries. There's somebody- yeah, You know why? I would, you know why, Nick? Because she, they need yes. the bar because because they've locked down so so draconian, right? In New Zealand, which has cut off like thirteen or fourteen percent of their GDP, specifically to tourism, they need to borrow dollars to be able to get it from the Chinese. Yeah. You know, exactly. you can't get it from the Australians because the Australians are tight as it is. So you're gonna have to go to the U.S. Fed for swap lines and and and, and borrowing. So that's that's exactly. what you're Somebody, somebody's had a word in her ear. The, the, oh, uh, because you, you're right, the, the U-turn was extraordinary. Uh, you know, maybe maybe the word came from Scott Morrison and the Australians because uh, they've gone extreme on their pushback against the Chinese. And talking, by the way, just to throw this out, I'm throwing this out there for you. Just talking about extreme against the Chinese in that respect, the British are dismantling all the Huawei 5G towers as we speak. All of yeah. them, they're coming down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, to be honest, uh, to be honest, uh, let's uh, let's highlight that uh, the British, uh, French, German, Belgian, and so on positions were quite similar in 2019 
prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, where they didn't see actually the installment and the launch of uh, Huawei 5G networks uh, on European soil as problematic or as linked to security risks. And actually the COVID-19 pandemic was this eye-opener for the European governments, including the British one, that they actually realized that it might be a serious issue. And I think that this is quite cynical to say, but um, we uh, at least the pandemic brought about something good for Europe that they actually decided against the launch of 5G uh, in European. A ahead because of the Hong Kong pressure, um, there, there was antagonism. Or I mean, you, the European Research Group, which was the very pro-Brexit group, whilst Theresa May was uh, Prime Minister transformed itself into the China Research Group, uh, led by, you know, mm. I think, Tom Tugendhat and Ian Duncan Smith. Um, it's interesting. UK has been always been very China aware when it's needed to be because of Hong Kong. And I think there was a, you know, as things were moving on Hong Kong very quickly, that's where the stress point started to break. I agree with you. There was a lot more synergy there. I still have... Um, I'm interested to see what now the Greens in Germany are quite anti-China, which is interesting. Being well, they have a P MP uh, sitting in the European Parliament who has been very, very critical of China before it was yeah. a trend, before it was actually something Correct. here in Europe. And I remember uh, experiencing him live in sessions in 2019, where he actually was very vocal about the potential yeah. risks coming out from you know, a closer relationship with China. So I think that, uh, and they are, by the way, not just critical and aware of uh, potential risks coming from China, but also Russia. Russia as well. Yes. I worry, but... that, I worry that Laschet, because as much as people got excited by this, the CDU, CSU slump in the opinion polls, um, things have steadied up a bit. I worry that, I worry about Laschet. That's my concern. And I think that is a big concern of the French as well, in terms of China and Russia. So um, that will be interesting to see how that all plays out come the, come the election. Mm -hmm. uh, and the French, uh, the French are dealing with their own issues right now. Just uh, let me yeah. remind you about the two letters uh, signed, uh, probably written active. by generals pointing active. to the... Some of uh, the some of these people were active military personnel and uh, highest uh, in the highest ranking positions. The second uh, letter was anonymous, uh, and uh, yeah, it's quite. I think that. signatories to date. I've been following that letter very closely because it's it one. It's quite extraordinary. Two. Uh, it gets reflected in, in, it will be reflected in the election. Just look at what Barnier said on immigration. Don't think they're unrelated. They're very related. <laughs> you know, Barnier wants to have immigration control within the EU now. Okay. It, because it's now, it's been proven it's possible because of COVID. With all the border <laughs> shutdown. So, you know, I mean, COVID's got a lot to answer for, I have to say. More questions. I'm see. I see more questions coming in the chat room, and I think uh, it's good also to ask these questions. There is one question about Central Asia. What is your take on Central Asia? What kind of role Central Asian 
countries might play in this uh, global powers competition equation. There is another question about Singapore. Uh, apparently, Singapore is uh, facing once again lockdown situation. What do you think? Do you think that this uh, with I mean, these re-emerging lockdowns might have actually additional negative impact on any positive global macro outlook uh, scenarios. Um, that, let's start with this actually, one. That's actually a point that me and Nick recently wrote about, is my view is uh, re-emerging lockdowns because the flu season ramps up and, you know, governments tend to manipulate data especially you know you're using COVID as a scapegoat is a beautiful thing so once those flu season numbers ramp up they could be mixed in with COVID initiating or justifying another lockdown like in Singapore and other nations which would absolutely destroy any kind of economic recovery and I fully I fully expect that to happen in September but you know it, we would need really good economic numbers up until then to to avoid something like that which I don't think is just going to happen I also, interestingly enough, from you know, so when the EU withheld the AstraZeneca vaccines to Australia, that 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 gap was filled by a British supply. Um, so 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 you know, yes, I completely concur with Albert. But interestingly enough, I think vaccine diplomacy could work for the Anglosphere in a positive way, as opposed to vaccine diplomacy has worked quite negatively for the Chinese. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, even the Chinese equivalent of the CDC is admitting that neither the Sinovac or Coronavac work very well. And we've got, you know, numerous examples of where Chile had a great vaccination program, 700,000 Pfizer, uh, 10 million Sinovac, and they then suffered another big wave. So, I actually think, interestingly, from a geopolitical standpoint, um, the vaccine diplomacy that the US and UK could leverage off of will be quite positive. I am sure there's, there's Singapore will get what it needs from the UK. Mm -hmm. India sent, uh, for India, the UK with this crisis sent six huge aircraft full of oxygen, ventilators, all the emergency equipment that was required. And they were short. And when I say oxygen, this is oxygen makers. So, you know, you, you, these, these were huge lorry-sized oxygen-producing uh, machines. Six of them went to India straight away from, from the UK. So as much as everybody's been worried about China diplomacy, vaccine diplomacy, I think it's going to flip very dramatically to the benefit of the western countries oh i agree i i i i just worry about variants um making the vaccinated people's uh the vaccinate the vaccines efficiency completely null and then you know like i said once the flu season starts up again and these numbers start to elevate that you know it'll cause mm. problems you have actually you've got the perfect lab in the uk so they're worried about the Indian variant in four hotspots right now. And it came out yesterday that they felt that those that those most exposed are unvaccinated. The vaccines will, if you get the Indian variant, will mitigate the impact. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, Again, I yeah. But Nick, one quite one 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 difference is we're in the midst of summer right now, so the flu season is actually uh, lowered. Wait till yeah. wait till September, and then we'll, well see know, what you happens. You know what the talk is in the UK with the, with regard to the flu jab. 
Mm. Um, given my sister actually had her second AstraZeneca today, apparently the intent is to mix the two. Mm. You go for your flu jab, you get a, an extra shot of the vaccine. Mm. Yeah, and um, certainly the so-called diplomacy vaccines will going to further shape the um, relations uh, between uh, main competitors and uh, also regional actors. Uh, we are observing this right now very, very... I mean, the, uh, the extreme case, of course, uh, with India, as Nick also gave the example, with uh, UK support, I mean, the Euro European Union um, actually switched on the civil mechanism and most of the member states actually provided uh, a lot of uh, help as well. But in reality, it's all about now the speed of vaccination. So certainly we are not, uh, I mean, uh, the, the the scenario of uh, further lockdowns is still on the table and it's not only considering Singapore or India but actually European member states are also quite uh, you know behind and need to speed up the vaccination and uh, if they don't manage this uh, by the end of I think summertime we are facing another lockdown scenario I suppose starting with of September. Melina, when have you ever seen when have you ever seen a politician take responsibility for any economic or political policies that they've ever pushed out? Never in history. So, mm -hmm. so if, if the economy doesn't do well, like these jobless numbers, uh, like the, the actual jobs report came out with huge miss in the United mm -hmm. States, they are going to find a scapegoat, and there is no better scapegoat than than COVID. None. none well, ever. actually. Why did they? Why did the Biden administration come out with this big announcement of masks? No masks are needed if you've been vaccinated on Thursday, because Job everything number. was coming against them. The unemployment, the inflation, the borders, all this bad news. They had to give you a bit of good news. Of course, that's mm -hmm. just the way it works. Yeah, there's your example. Uh, I see that there are more questions coming up uh, in the chat room, so it's up to you to say whether you are actually open to further questions. It's your time. Uh, we are already... Let's take two or three more. Let's yeah, take two okay. more. <laughs> well, there is a question, for instance, on Turkey. What will? What is your anticipation about the relation uh, with Turkey under Biden's administration? Uh, there is also a question about, uh, or more or less comment about uh, BRI. Uh, so there is a, for instance, comment that the BRI died in 2017. What is your take? Do you think that China will uh, will actually uh, further push for the BRI initiatives, uh, or is this initiative still alive in your in your view, the Belt so and Road the Initiative? So for the Turkey question, because well, there are two questions. So the Turkey issue. I think that the Biden administration is so weak on foreign policy, specifically in the Middle East, that the that er Erdogan is going to have to find alternative support, which is going to be Iran, Russia, and to the lesser China. extent China. Yeah, to mm -hmm. the lesser extent China, but for sure it's going to be the Rush. It's going to be the Russians and um, the Iranians that are leading that. I mean, they're the only ones in the, like dabbling in the Middle East. Realistically, the United States seems to have been pull pulling back or or just mismanaging everything at the moment. And the worst thing you could do is create instability in the Middle East. You need a, you need a firm firm hand in the Middle East and firm security guarantees. And Turkey, Turkey is no different. They need that also. And unfortunately, a nervous Turkey is gonna cause problems with the Greeks. It's gonna cause problems with the Cypriots. It's gonna cause problem with Egypt. 
in Italy, and it's it's just it's a big problem, and I and think it's going to be totally mismanaged. And is well, that goes to, that goes without being said. Israel, Israel, and yeah. Turkey used to be great allies up until uh, Obama came into office. You know, once right. once that destabilized, the, the Middle East was just just waiting to explode. And I know people don't like Trump or Jared Kushner. And realistically, because of the because of the the dollar was so strong, the Middle East had to play ball with with the United States and Trump. They 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 got these peace deals out there, so they they pacified it to a certain degree. But that's just completely done a U turn right now. Mm -hmm. Well, they got the peace deals, but they were also vehemently anti Iran. And that yeah. that you know the timing is not is not a coincidence. I mean, this timing has occurred because of the shift in the administration and the mm -hmm. administration's focus on. Get this deal done with Iran under any cost. So, you know, that dynamic, of course, you're going to see Hamas and Hezbollah um, step up. That, that, that's, such, that's such an ignorant and naive ideology is like if you, if you appease the Iranians that the entire Middle East is going to go just to, you know, have flowers and, and, and festivals all day long. That's not, the, that's not the case. The Saudis and the Iranians are mortal enemies, right? Qatar and Bahrain, they're, you know, they're mixed up in the UAE. They're all mixed up and divided across lines, you know, for certain interests between the Iranians and the Saudis. The Israelis and the Saudi Arabians are great allies. People don't understand how great allies they are. And they work against the Iranians. I mean, you cannot appease the Iranians and expect the rest of the Middle East to just go along with it. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. Uh, Nick, there is also a question for you. Do you think that uh, the UK and the European Union will further diverge following the Brexit, or there, will there be actually some points of intersection? There should be points of intersection. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know when those points of intersection will be activated, <laughs> because you've got, I, I, I suspect you've got a situation whereby, I mean, the whole, I, I felt that, you know, the AstraZeneca and the vaccine debacle, they shifted blame onto AstraZeneca, but also by default the UK, which was a bit strange. I think the, U, the EU, there, is, there are fundamental differences. I think there will be divergence on how they treat technology and data. Hence, mm -hmm. the UK will push for, for further and faster on AI, uh, which is a weakness for the European Union. Um, but there are natural crossovers. And I think despite the age-long antipathy between the British and the French, there is this key uh, military treaty that cannot be ignored. Um, and as you know, I, I heard a couple of MPs last week, I got involved in the discussion, were saying, we should threaten to pull out of that treaty if the French don't start playing better ball. I think, I think actually all this fishing nonsense. It's all Macron trying to find his feet and position himself prior to the election. He's in quite a weak position because this election coming up next year, if you read between the lines and you speak to people in Paris or in various corridors of power, you may not have... So in previous elections, you've had um, any, any, any vote against Le Pen in the second round a Le Pen, whether it was a father or Marine Le Pen. Mm -hmm. This time, if it's Macron versus Le Pen, I'm not convinced that the, the left-wing voter will vote against Le Pen. They may just abstain, which creates real exposure for Macron. 
Um, so I think this is all positioning. I don't think it's to do with UK-British relations per, per se. I think it's all domestic politics driving whatever. Um, mm -hmm. So I think ultimately the EU, the problem the EU has is by invoking Article 16 on the vaccine and then Article 122, they're telling companies, particularly multinational companies, if you produce here, you could lose your production to our control so that you may not be able to fulfill what you, you agreed with third countries or, com or companies. That is a big problem. That really is a huge problem. So I think that into, you saw Airbus has shifted a large amount of production to the UK. Airbus? <laughs> You know, that, that, that's quite shocking. So I think until that changes and they become more friendly to the rule of law within the supply chain environment, plus the differences in data legislation between the U UK and the EU, the UK should carry on forging ahead. There will be divergence. But I think the sooner everybody gets over the Brexit sentiment and the Brexit is, I mean, one thing the European Union should not do is get involved in the Scottish independence debate. Under no circumstances should they be involved with that debate. Uh, they will, no doubt there will be some, you know, interference, but it would be a mistake because if Scotland were to get independence, and I, I just can't see that happening, then the EU will contribute to Scotland. Scot Scotland will be a net beneficiary. It will not be paying into the budget. It will be taken from the budget. Mm. Um, so I, I, I think we need a period of calming down, but they have to sort out the Northern Ireland protocol. It doesn't work. And that protocol plus what is effectively a hard border through Article 122, it's a de facto hard border, whereas it was actually a um, de jure hard border with Article 16, which she quickly withdrew. Until they get that sorted out, that Good Friday peace agreement is problematic. It suffers because of the Northern Ireland Protocol. And I sense that the, Amer the Biden administration understands that because they haven't come down hard yeah. against the British on that discussion. By the way, Biden yeah. claims he's the Irish ancestry. That's on his maternal side. His paternal side came from Sussex, which is very mm. English. <laughs> Albert, I, I uh, I, yeah. I, I just think one, one quick point, the problem I think of why I th the, the, the EU and the UK are likely still to diverge is because the EU cannot allow the perception of leaving the union as a beneficial as a benefit to a nation. This is the problem because you already have you already have the Dutch and some other nations that are talking about look at the they don't want to see they don't want to have the UK as a on a pedestal saying look what can happen if you leave the European Union. You can't have that. So you're still going to have those political forces uh, attacking the UK for the next two, three years, in my opinion. The trouble is that 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 that, that horse is bolted because of the vaccines. Yeah, even Barney turned around and, and said, well, you know, one benefit of Brexit was look at the vaccine success of the British. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so. By the way, I'm so seeing that uh, uh, I, I see that I'm seeing that uh, Adam Townsend joined uh, joined uh, the oh, live right. uh, stream. Good morning, uh, Adam, and uh, warm greets uh, to 
United States. Uh, it's really great to have you. Uh, if he has a question, I will make sure to post it. Uh, one question to Albert. Do you think, Albert, we are going to witness a kind of a relaxation of the tensions between United States and uh, China under Biden? And uh, do you buy the thesis, my thesis, of the bifurcation of the global system? Or is it just to, uh, you know, it's just a kind of a transitionary period before uh, things uh, calm down once again uh, in favor of the West? I, I So I do think that Biden is going to be a little bit is he's going to bend he's going to bend to the chinese to, for a certain degree because the chinese have such economic uh, asymmetrical economic uh weapons against the united states that the biden administration is going to be forced to especially around midterms and general election they're going to have to come out for you know settle down with the chinese a little bit in my opinion um as to your other point you know bifurcation these, yeah these things these things happen in cycles, in my opinion, right? Um, you don't have a real threat from the Chinese, per se, against the, against the West. What the Chinese like to do is they like to plug gaps that the United States or Europe uh, leave in certain, certain areas, and they do that well, right? But in the long run, because of the, the way the Chinese negotiate and their intent on taking natural resources and food security away from emerging markets, that that's, that's inevitably gonna fail. And the, everyone most likely comes back to the Anglosphere and the, and the European Union. Mm -hmm. uh, there are two questions also on US politics. Do you want to comment on them, Albert? I can ask them very shortly and you can decide whether you want to, you have yeah, a comment on them. And I have yeah, a question also for Nick. One is that, do you think that uh, the there are there are any chance that the audits in Arizona, Michigan, and Wisconsin change the outcome of the election? And the second question is about the uh, the, the Marxist doctrine and the far left uh, far left uh, indoctrination of certain politicians among the Democrats uh, now moving to schools, uh, universities. Uh, intelligence institutions, military, is it a trend that is only short, shortly lived or do you think that this might impact uh, U.S. politics in the long run? Yeah, of course it will impact U.S. politics without question. I mean, you, this, is the same that the, this is the same as the Soviets did back in the started from the 60s and 70s by, by indoctrinating professors, which indoctrinated students, which created and they, they amplified civil, civil movements you know, within the United States to cause problems. It's just a normal thing. I mean, most nations meddle in other nations' uh, politics without question. Um, as, you know, as for U.S. politics, I mean, right now it's all about economics and COVID. Uh, until those two get sorted out, it's, that's what you're going to see for the next, you know, 12 to 18 months. One thing mm -hmm. I would say on the, um, this indoctrination of I, I am a firm believer in the symbiotic relationship politically between the US and the UK in both directions. And what you had in the UK was this split. People are shocked by it, but the Conservative Party is now the party of the working man. And the Labour Party, which went very, very hard left under Jeremy Corbyn, became the party of the urban elites. Mm -hmm. And I think that trend will hit hard starting with the midterms.
because under no those that knew knew but the majority who i mean i speak to so many people who voted for biden and saying i never knew it was going to be like this this mm -hmm. left me never knew and you know i'm sitting there going how could you not <laughs> you know you're well, that's you that's that's correct, Nick. You're absolutely correct. I mean, the, the, the further the further the left, the further they go to the left, it's inevitably going to swing back because now you're starting to hit centrist Democrats with you know progressive policies that they don't agree with. You know, they're mm. taking they're taking jobs away from people. They're canceling people. You know, they, this, these are these are things that just are they don't sit well with centrists either on the right or the left. You know, you go too far to the right, it's going to swing to the left. You go too far to the left, it's inevitably going to swing back to the right. So, you know, the danger is that the progressive policies get to the point where they're mixing in with economic policies, which which is why I do not want to see Brainerd <laughs> as Fed chair. So that's that's the biggest danger. But other than that, I mean, it, it, it'll swing back and forth like a pendulum. It's just going to mm -hmm. take, you know, a decade. Okay, I mean, well, enough, there is a question. Forth. Yeah, sorry. sorry. Interesting enough, this back and forth like a pendulum, um, but the swings will get longer. So the anticipation in the UK, the UK, the Conservatives have been in power for over 10 years. There is no sign that Labour are going to recover for another 10 years. So that pendulum oh, no. swing could take a, a lot longer. And yeah, I, I, I mean, I anticipate that, that those forces will flow over to the Atlantic in that respect. Like the UK adopts certain American culture and we're going through the woke, the wokest side and council culture in the UK at the moment, such that Oxford University wants to get rid of the sterling measurement system. Not understanding that the, the uh, metric system was introduced by another imperialist, Napoleon. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's, it's nonsense, but I, I suspect that in the, the reverse, you will see that, that, that pendulum swing go longer. And I just think Perhaps. that this has been such a shock to a lot of people in the US on how left wing and progressive the people use the term progressive. I'm just going to say these are very, very left wing policies that have been introduced. Mm -hmm. There'll be pushback and that pushback will, will last for a while. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, Nick, William. because you are, uh, we are approaching our um, uh, the end of this session. But uh, one final question: um, What about uh, United States establishing a BRI-like initiative in uh, Central and South America? Because this is actually, if we consider the Monroe Doctrine, the near abroad of the United States. Now, with China and Russia being very active there, um, how do you think that United States might? Um, might uh, create some counterbalance to this uh, presence. Well, you, you, have, you have pro US countries, but I hate to say this, the majority of the South American countries would push back hard. I mean, uh, there's, there's a lot of anti US sentiments still incipient in Brazil and Argentina. Oh, of course, uh, we've neglected Latin America for decades. Exactly. Why, would they, mm -hmm. why would they like the United States? A century. Yeah, a century. Yeah. I mean, we, we've completely ignored them because they're in our backyard, but I mean, it's ridiculous, you know? But this is what I said that the Europeans need to actually step in with the United States and, and plug those holes, especially in those overseas networks that they've had historically. I, it, just, it just boggles my mind, but there's, but there's no, there's no leadership. There's no leadership for such a thing. So I don't see Agreed. it happening. And I just, mm -hmm. I, I see that the Chinese and the Russians will take advantage of it. I mean, you have a very anti-US 
government in Argentina. Brazil's got elections next year, which could be Bolsonaro against Lula. There's a, two extremes for you. One, <laughs> one election, right? So I, it, it, it makes sense, but mm. it makes sense from our perspective. Does it make sense? Is it practical from the local perspective? I don't think so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I think that uh, there are, of course, questions that we could not uh, cover, but uh, due to the fact that we actually had a session of almost 90 minutes, I think that uh, this is now the... <laughs> there was one funny question, which is whether there is an, one issue that you actually, the two of you actually do not agree on. I don't know whether we can say that publicly, can we? <laughs> there's, there's plenty. There's plenty. <laughs> Sometimes there's plenty on the economic side, you know, plenty on the economic side. And even some, some disagreement on like what the Germans are going to do in Europe. But we, we do disagree quite often. Just we, do, we keep it privately. Let's, uh, let's keep it private. <laughs> yes, let's keep it private. And I'm really grateful that you could join me on a, such a lovely Saturday and we could actually exchange and uh, discuss so many interesting uh, topics. I reserve myself the option to invite you once again, uh, probably by the end of the year to cover some of these issues once again and see where we are heading uh, in 2022. And I'm really, really thankful that you found the time to join me today and to discuss so openly uh, with me this, uh, these topics. Thank you very much. Thank you. Terrific. Thank you, Valina. Thank you very much. Thank you.